Good morning. My name is Mike Overstreet. I'm one of the pastors here at Element 3 Church. I'm so excited that you are joining us this Sunday. Today, we are going to move into week two of our series, Just Be, which we kicked off last week. And if you missed last week, I highly recommend that you go back and you catch up on our podcast or our Vimeo Element 3 Church because it sets the foundation for where we're going to go in this next season. You see, what we looked at was this fascinating text in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus laid out what it means to just be present to God, ourselves, and others in every moment of our lives. It was this profound teaching that laid out an invitation for life that we can become people who stop having to try to do things like trust God, feel at peace, extend love, show grace, be patient, because we can grow to just be those things in our world, in our daily lives, and where it matters most. Getting to where they just flow out of who we are where we stop having to ask what would Jesus do in a given situation because we learn to just be like Jesus in all situations. It's this journey that we are calling the move from human doings to human beings. But you see, it's a paradox. There's a paradox baked into this process when you look at the scriptures. Despite what we often think, becoming someone different, especially in moments of crisis, pressure, and, and stress, isn't as simple as just flipping a switch. No, what we found was that to get to the point where we can just be something new, we actually have to commit to new kinds of trying and doing first. In other words, to get to where we can stop trying and just be things like peace, hope, love, patience, grace, when it matters most, we have to commit to practicing those things in our daily life first making them second nature to the thing that we all hate the most, practice, practice, practice. The repetitive practice of spiritual disciplines passed down through Christian tradition, through the scriptures that teach us to do new things in our daily lives so we can transform to just be those things no matter what in any season. It's just who we are. So in each week of this series, that's what we're going to look at. We will look at what it means to just be a key part of the spiritual journey, a key part of spirituality. And then we're going to look at the time-tested spiritual disciplines that have been passed down, that we are called to practice to get us there. And to start this week, I actually want to start with a bit of confession. I want to talk about something that's unforgivable, that is just devastating to my relationships, especially my relationship with my wife. It is just this dark compulsion. And that is, I can't stop myself from analyzing and predicting out loud the endings of movies while I watch them. I literally cannot stop it. My wife hates it. It happened recently, actually, at this date night we had. Uh, I watched this movie Frozen with her. Uh, it's this cartoon, right? Um, I'm not sure how I made it through five years of youth ministry without seeing Frozen, but I did, uh, let it go, whatever. Um, but it's this animated movie about, uh, you know, a snowman, unicorns, all sorts of fantastical magic, adventures, singing about life experiences for no apparent reason, out of nowhere. All things that aim to do one thing, turn off the brain so we could sit back and get lost in a fantastical journey. But not for me. You see, for my brain, 
immediately went to work doing what it always does. And that is collecting and organizing data, taking in characters, plot points, all for one purpose, to analyze it and to begin making predictions about how this movie was going to go. I started saying things out loud like, I bet the parents don't make it, which that's a freebie. Uh, the parents never make it in these movies. I bet the good guy is actually the bad guy. I bet this cute snowman character is going to have to sacrifice himself to save everyone else, even though there are no stakes in these kind of movies, so he's probably going to come back. I bet you that love wins in the end, yada, yada, yada. And I'm actually pretty good at this. I actually win more than I lose. I usually get a lot of it right. But apparently, the thing is, people hate it. You see, apparently, people want to watch a movie so they can stop thinking and just get lost in the story. And they actually don't want to watch movies with living, breathing spoiler machines running an internal monologue out loud for two hours. I don't get why. But I can't help it either way. See, my natural mode of being, the way my brain just naturally works, is to overthink. My brain doesn't turn off. And often, what that means is <laughs> that I just think through everything. And my life has often actually reinforced this behavior. It's helped me get ahead in so many things. It's helped me be good at my job. It helped me get through school. It helped me be really, really good at board games. This ability to analyze and predict behaviors and outcomes everywhere. But here's the thing. You see, as one of my favorite authors puts it, the Franciscan friar Richard Rohr, how you do anything is how you do everything. You see, what I mean by that is when left to my own devices, I can't decide when or where this overthinking, analytical, predictive mind is going to apply itself. I can't just turn it off. It doesn't just stick to movies, right? For example, without being intentional, I wake up and immediately start analyzing and predicting my entire day. Before I even finish my first cup of coffee, I have been thinking, I have been analyzing, I've been predicting, what am I going to have for lunch? What do I need to get done at work today to feel okay? What route am I going to drive on the way to work? And which podcast do I need to listen to so I can get ready for my sermon on Sunday? I've decided all of that, right? Or in the shower, maybe you'll appreciate this one, so maybe you'll relate. That analytical, predictive mind turns to conversations I might have someday with someone in my life. What do I mean by that? Well, it means I just imagine these conversations. And yo, they usually aren't very chill. I know that's shocking if you know me. I usually imagine myself finally saying all the things I've wanted to say to so-and-so about such and such. It's these conversations I imagine having where I say just the right thing that proves I was right in an argument, that proves that they were wrong, and then they apologize, and they change their behavior forever, and I am vindicated, right? I just play these conversations over and over in my head. Or, more seriously, that analytical, predictive mind turns on people in my relational world, at work, the people I should be helping, those different than myself. My mind, without meaning to, just starts analyzing, judging, making predictions about their lives, who I think they are, what I think they'll do, and then I act accordingly. You see, when left to my own devices, my mind is just insane by the time I leave my house. I call it the monkey cage. Each thought 
each bit of analysis, each bit of judgment, each resentment I dwell on, each plan I form for my day, each anxiety is just one more monkey going into the cage that is my mind. And before long, what I find is that my mind just becomes a bunch of monkeys fighting, jumping, rattling around, doing what monkeys do in my head. Da-da, da-da, da-da. And believe it or not, when my brain is this all the time, it is not great for my relational and internal world. I mean, I get flustered when my movie predictions fall through. How do you think I do when the monkey cage is going and the plans for my life don't go as predicted? How do you think I do when someone disrupts me at work and I've told myself I need to get this amount of work done today for me to be okay? How do you think I do when my loved ones don't do what I think they should do given the data I have analyzed and the outcomes I think I have predicted? How do you think I do when those imaginary conversations don't go how I thought they would? or they never actually happen. Well, usually I shut down, I double down, or I get defensive. And again, my internal world and my relational world suffers for it. See, I've heard it said, and I believe it, the mind is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. It's a great tool for understanding our world, but oh my goodness, what a mess it can make when it's all we use to live and navigate within it. See, for most of my life, though, I would have responded to that point by saying, well, what else is there? This, this brain, this monkey cage, this is who I am. What else would I use to navigate my world? And to that, the scriptures provide an answer. See, what they tell us is there's something truer, there's something more real than the rattling of this cage, the rattling of this brain. Paul, one of the early leaders of the church, answered that question in this way in Romans 8, verse 6. He said, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. And I think this is profound when you actually dive into the scripture. You see, the word flesh doesn't mean our skin. It's far deeper than that. It's better to think of it in Paul's ideas of the world as our human nature, our ego, the parts of us that want control, the parts of us that try to build our own kingdom in the world, the parts of us that try to take charge of every little thing. For me, it's the monkey cage. It's that brain that analyzes and predicts and tries to control and look at what Paul says here. It checks out from my experience. It leads to death. Like I said, when I let this run my day, I find very little peace in life, but I sure find a lot of spiritual death in my internal and relational world. But check this out. Paul says there's another way. The mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. And this idea is at the core of Christian belief that in us dwells the spirit of God the personal presence of God seeking to guide us, work through us, governing our minds instead of that flesh, that ego, that monkey cage. See, when you read the Bible, you're gonna find that what it tells us is that there is a spirit that will guide us better than this ever could in the moments of our lives. 
But at the same time, when you read the scriptures, you're going to find the same old paradox. We can't get to where the Spirit leads us as our second nature unless we commit to practice, practice, practice. And that is what we will explore today. What it means to attune ourselves to God's Spirit, to practice quieting the monkey cage in our daily lives so we can learn to just be centered on the Spirit within us, no matter what's going on in our world. And to begin, I want to look at this word spirit first. It's actually one of my favorite words in the Bible. It is profound. It is this deeply poetic word that has such rich meaning. You see, in the Old Testament, it is the Hebrew word ruach, which is translated as spirit, breath, or wind. And it is intimately tied to God's personal presence in his work to create, animate, and sustain life. So for example, in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, it is God's ruach. It is his spirit that speaks our universe into existence. And when God creates human beings, it says he shapes them from the earth, from the dirt, but he brings them to life by breathing his ruach, his breath, his spirit into human beings to animate them to life. And when a creature dies in the scriptures, it is because God's ruach his spirit, his personal life-giving presence leaves them when they breathe their last breath. God's spirit or breath is said to fill every creature's lungs, animates our world. It sustains all life. But there's more, you see. On one hand, the scriptures describe the ruach of God as being in all life. But it also says we can do things to connect to it more. You see, the spirit of God is depicted as calling people into relationship with God so they can participate in his work to create, sustain, and protect life in his creation. It says that we can connect to it so it can work through us. It is the breath of God that keeps us alive, but it's also something personal, moving, calling, and leading. And the New Testament expanded this idea of God's dwelling and acting spirit within us. You see, in Greek, it becomes pneuma, and it appears over and over again in the New Testament. For example, in Acts 17, Paul is teaching about who God is and how he operates in the world. And we find this profound vision of God's work in 17 verse 24. We read, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything from us. Rather, he himself gives everyone life, breath, pneuma, and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. It's this image of God leading creation through his spirit, whether we see it or not. God working through his spirit to create, sustain, and direct the flourishing of abundant life all around us. The spirit of God gifting life and directing life in its purposes, no matter what. But this is the fascinating part. Paul says the gift of or this God of life and spirit isn't confined to a temple. 
which if you were a person in his audience, a person in the ancient world, this would be a very odd statement. You see, in ancient thought, temples were simply where gods lived. A god's presence on earth resided in a temple. That's just how things work. So if this god doesn't live in a temple, where does it live? And this is where it starts getting profound. Paul writes in verse 27, he continues on. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Where do we find this God? Paul says, look around you. We live in a world overflowing with life, which means we live in a world overflowing with God's spirit. Wherever we find life, we find the personal, life-giving, sustaining, directing presence of our God. Paul says, God is in us, around us, at the center of our being. The presence of God is not far from us because it's as close as our breath, our ruach, our spirit. But notice what Paul also said. He says the spirit is in us. It's where we have our being, but apparently it is also something we must seek, reach out to, and find if we want to be led by it in the world. And he actually goes on to expand on this in his letter to the small church in Galatia, where in Galatians 5, 25, he says, since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. Apparently we can have life. We can have breath through the spirit, but we can at the same time be out of step with its leading and the way it's working in the world, the way it's creating life and peace in our world. And for me, this is all about that flesh, that ego, that monkey cage when I let it govern my life. You see, my mind is an excellent servant, a tool for learning, problem solving, getting stuff done, but it is a terrible master if I'm trying to find peace in life in my world. See, my mind tells me that it can analyze, predict, and manipulate its way to controlling people and events outside of myself. But the fact of the matter is, I only have control over one thing in this world, and that's myself. And even then, I often don't have control of that because my brain is so out of sync with reality. As my mentor told me, when this monkey cage starts going, do this one thing. In your mind, put a hula hoop on the ground, step inside of it, and realize that that's all you can control in this world. If it's not inside the hula hoop, you have no real control over it, period, end of story. And that centers me back in reality. My mind also tells me that it will build my kingdom in the world, a kingdom that will be good for me. But here's the problem. My mind's perspective on people and events is so limited and it's so biased. It's so self-centered. My mind, by the nature of it, only really knows my own thoughts, experiences, wants, and desires. And thus the kingdom it tries to build is only ever going to be focused on me. That monkey cage is about me, me, me. And when that's governing my mind, I don't know about you, I don't find life or peace. But there is another way. You see, we are told that we can connect to God's spirit 
the Ruach of God dwelling at the center of our being, this vision of surrendering ourselves to the pneuma, to the Spirit's guidance, emptying our minds, letting it be the tool it was made to be, not the master. A mind governed by God's presence, centering us and directing us into what it's already doing all around us in the world, creating and sustaining life and peace wherever it's found. But alas, as I am sure your analyzing and predicting minds could have expected me to say, we can't just get centered on that spirit without the thing we hate most. Practice, practice, practice. How can we expect to connect to and hear the whisper of the spirit at the center of our being if all we can hear is the rattling of the monkey cage? If we've never once learned to quiet the monkey cage, to quiet the ego, to quiet the mind. If without thought, any time we get still and quiet, our mind takes over. I need this. I resent that person. I must do this today. I, 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 me, me, me. It takes practice to quiet the monkey cage and learn to just be centered on something bigger than ourselves, moving inside of ourselves. And at this point, I want to close by just getting really practical. You see, I want to share a practice that I personally use every day that was taught to me, that has helped me to be more centered than anything else I've ever practiced in my entire life. It's unoriginally called centering prayer. And it's all about the quieting of the monkey cage and the centering of ourselves on the spirit of God moving in us and around us. And I just want to walk through what it looks like because this is a profound practice. Here's what you do. First, you do it at the same time in the same place every day. Make it a daily routine. Make it non-negotiable. Because be honest, if you're anything like me, if I don't make it non-negotiable, I won't do it. That's why we use words like discipline and practice, because if we don't commit to it, we will almost always find reasons to do something else. Do, 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 rather than just sit still and just be. So I do it alone at the kitchen counter first thing when I get up in the morning. And I do it in the morning because if I don't get centered in the morning, if I don't find peace when I begin my day, then how could I ever expect to find peace or find that center once my day actually starts going nuts? If I don't find those things first thing, then I won't find them when things really pick up. The monkey cage will own me. It will eat me by lunch. So first thing. Second, the length of it. I do this practice for 20 minutes, but to start, I recommend you start with three minutes or five minutes and work your way up. You want to build to this. Trust me, you'll see why when you start. Third, what you do, you pick a holy word. One word that reminds you of God's presence. Don't overthink it. It's not about your intellectual brain. It's just something that makes you feel connected to God. Just pick one that connects your heart to God. Mine is Abba, which means Papa in scripture. It's this loving term that Jesus uses for the Father. Others pick things that are more mysterious, like Yahweh, or more comfortable, like Jesus. Um, I know a couple of people who use words like surrender, peace, love. It doesn't matter what it is. It just needs to be a word that gets you in that connection with the Father. 
in the spirit. Next, you get still and you get quiet. A lot of prayer is about talking or asking things of God, but not this one. No, this one's about listening and opening our minds to what the spirit is already doing around us. So sit down, shut up and get still. And after that, it's a very simple practice. You close your eyes, you acknowledge that God is present in that space. God, your spirit is here because you are everywhere in you. I have my being. And then you breathe in through your nose, follow your breath, and you breathe out through your mouth, follow your breath out. And after you exhale, you say and focus your whole mind's attention on your holy word. The goal is to clear your mind fully, only focusing on your breath, the Ruach of God coming into you, the Ruach of God leaving you, and then his presence with you through that word that reminds you that he's there in spirit, Abba. And each time a thought comes and this monkey cage rattles, you acknowledge it with non-judgment, whatever that thought or that feeling or whatever that intrusion is, you just acknowledge it with non-judgment. I get it, my brain, you want to think about that. We're not doing that right now. And then you dismiss it. You let it go. You let it pass through you. You give it to God. And here's the key. You return your attention to your breath and God through that word, Abba. And then you just repeat. No matter the thought, no matter the feeling, acknowledge it, surrender it, return to God. And you might say, that sounds really easy, but you'd be wrong. You see, it's simple, but I promise you it ain't easy. You see, I promise you the first time you try, you won't get through one round of breath of exhaling before you think about and have your mind latch onto the most absurd things. See, without practice, what we don't usually realize is that our minds have no idea what to do with silence, stillness, and not doing. Your mind will hate it. It will try to do anything to fill that still and quiet space. You will be shocked by what just pops into your mind without you thinking about it. Did I forget to call grandma? What am I going to do for lunch? Mike is so dumb. Stop telling me what to do. I, one of my favorites that often reoccurs for me is while I'm trying to do centering prayer, I will find myself thinking about how to teach people how to do centering prayer, which is obviously ridiculous, right? I mean, it's just wild. Oh my goodness, I was supposed to pick up more toaster strudels. I mean, these are just things that will pop in. And what do you do? You breathe in. Yes, you told your wife you get more toaster strudels, but that's not what you're doing right now. You breathe out. Let it go. Be here with God. Abba. That's centering prayer. And man, when I first started, I felt like such a failure. My thoughts wouldn't go away or slow down. The monkey cage was just in full-fledged protest. It did not want to be calm. But here's the thing. That's the point. Richard Rohr also says this. This is what we are practicing when we sit and contemplate a prayer. We are practicing underdoing an assured failure, which radically rearranges our inner hardware for a while. And it's so true. See, what I have found is that each time I wander off in my mind and fail to stay centered, 
I learn something new about myself. I become consciously aware of thoughts and impulses that I am usually not still enough to know that are even going on in my head. What I do is I have these thoughts that are apparently running behind the scenes, taking my peace, directing my actions, impacting my life. And I don't even know they're going on because I'm so busy doing, doing, doing that I can't ever hear them. But in centric prayer, when I'm still, I learn to recognize them, intercept them, surrender them. And each time I find myself wandering off in my mind and returning to my breath, the spirit at my center, and I refocus myself on God's presence with me, Abba, I find that noise getting a little more quiet. I begin to learn to let go of all the frantic trying and doing. The I, 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 me, me, me. And beginning to learn to just be there with God and still peace so I can hear what he wants me to do. So I can learn to just be centered on him, not this. And I have found that when I practice this every single day, God really does start to rewire that mind. It has done more for my spirituality than any other practice I've committed to. See, over time, that failure and that need to return becomes less and less constant, less and less hard to do. The thoughts, the judgments, the desires for control become less and less sticky and intrusive. I can let them go more quickly. And on some days, the monkey cage is quieted all together. God stills it. He empties it. He, he pours it out. And he opens me to what he is already doing around me. And throughout the day, as it starts to fill again, what I find is that I found that peace and that breath and that spirit at the beginning of the day. And all I have to do to empty it out is return to that center. And ultimately, what I learn is that I can just be centered on his spirit in me. And I can get out of his way and let him work through me to do more than I ever could. And for me, with this, that peace and life is truly a miracle. So, where do you need to learn to just be centered? Where do you need to learn to find the spirit moving within you and around you? Where do you need this practice? Amen.